melody, I believe, from Bach's first symphony. You have to listen to a whole lot of mush to get to that part, but when you get there, it's worth it, isn't it? It's a beautiful melody. I'm reading from Matthew 16. Time when Jesus was alone with his disciples. And we read that now when he came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who are the people saying that I am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? It was Simon Peter who answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I... Uh, Didn't sleep real well last night. At about 2.30, I gave up the attempt, got up, cleaned up, and went into town for breakfast. And the nice young man who waited on me brought my bill, and after my senior discount and the tax and everything, the total was 666. This has not been a good week. I say that for reasons that are known to most of you. On Tuesday of this week, the session voted by the narrowest of all possible margins that the time of my usefulness to this church has come to an end and that my call should be terminated on my birthday of next year. The decision was a shock to me because I wasn't expecting it. It was distressing to me because I pray continuously about my work and about my future and I have had no sense that the time has come for us to part company. When I left my first church, there was to me a very definite indication that the time had come. And the same thing was true when I left my second church. This is my third, and God has left me yet unmoved in my search for his direction. I love what I do. I love most of the people. I do it too. And I have absolutely no internal conviction that that time has come to an end. And this was a troubling decision when I learned of it because I was not at that part of the meeting. I'm sure that you would agree that no matter what you think of me and my usefulness to the church, this is a decision of some importance and magnitude. A decision that one would expect to be made in the context of perhaps considerable discussion and studies. But instead the decision was made after virtually no discussion. Adding to my distress is the fact that I have no clear understanding of what others have found lacking in my ministry or of the danger they perceive my continued presence represents to this church. As many of you can imagine, it's been a difficult week. It's been a week of sleepless nights and troubled thoughts. It's been a time in which a close and loving family has become even more precious to me. It's been a season in which the presence and the hugs and the sweet words and the promises of the prayers of friends have picked me up and carried me from day to day. And I am most grateful to those of you who have been a part of that. And it's been a week in which I learned or relearned some rather important things about myself, about people, 
and most importantly about our God. As I've passed through this time, there have been certain passages of Scripture that have been a great comfort to me. In Joshua 1.6, God speaks to a man, and he says, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Psalm 23, a man speaks to God, and he says, Yea, though I find myself in any threatening time or place, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In these recent days, I have known the presence of God. I have found it on the pages of his word. I have sensed it in the love of his people. I have known it in my own heart and mind. Every time I have called on him, he has responded and granted me peace. And many of you can say the same thing of yourselves. You have passed through times of threat or loneliness or sorrow or uncertainty. You've reached out to the Lord, and as he promised, he has responded to you and your needs. And we've all noticed that often, in spite of our loudest complaints and pleas, God chooses not to remove the source of our distress. Instead, he fills the time of that distress with his own presence. And finally, what more than that could we ask for? Recognizing that the distress God brings to, cause, to us causes us to cry out for the peace that he promises, we are left praising him, not only for his great peace, but also for the turmoil that prompted our prayers for that peace. And on both hands, we see the goodness of our God. Centuries ago, there was a man who found himself in a troubling time. In the midst of his troubles, he says, I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver me. In a few verses, he celebrates the goodness of God by saying, you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. And that great prayer, the 116th, in which a man remembers the goodness of God, begins with the words, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he inclined his ear unto me, I will call upon him as long as I live. For me and for all of you with similar experiences, may that be our intention and our commitment as well. Another family of scriptures that have meant a lot to me in the last few days are those that deal with the very practical reality of our doctrine of predestination. For many people, predestination is a doctrine that is taught in classes on theology, Bible studies, Sunday school classes. It's an esoteric, theoretical idea, and it's often taught or received without the realization of its immense practical value to the people of God. In Psalm 103, we read that the Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. And of course, Romans 8, 28, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This doctrine I once despised, I now wholeheartedly embrace. The word of God has required me to understand that I live in a universe and I am a part of history totally under the purposeful and wild, wise control of Almighty God. 
And it has further assured me that God's sovereignty over the lives of his covenant people is always benevolent, intended to correct our faults, to meet our real needs, to cause us to grow in our faith and its practice, and sometimes even to use us in accomplishing his broader purposes. This thing that I preach, I have been reminded I really believe, and that's encouraging. Yet this past week, I've also found myself embarrassed on a number of occasions to have to fall to my knees and apologize to God for losing sight of who he is and how he relates to the details of my life. But each time an old lesson becomes fresh, each time God repeats his mercy to familiar sins, each time we recognize the need in ourselves for wisdom, for patience, for contentment, for peace, each time we take a step closer or back closer to the image of God, we find we have even greater reason to lift our voices in praise and to strive to live lives that honor the one who means so much to us. Another lesson that I've learned this week has been a hard one. It's been a disappointing lesson. It has to do with people and fair expectations of people. In Acts 6, we read of the election of the first elders in the church of Jesus Christ. In verse 3 of that chapter, Peter speaks to a congregation of believers, and he says this, Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint to this office. And as many of you know, these qualifications are fleshed out further in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. What does it mean that these elders and all elders elected by the church since were expected to be full of the Holy Spirit? Does it mean that they spoke loudly in tongues? Does it mean that they healed the sick? Does it mean that they delivered startling or helpful prophecies? The answer is found in Galatians 5.22, where we read of the fruit of the Holy Spirit or the evidence of his real presence in the life of a person. And we read that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and kindness. The first evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person is love. Just a few verses after writing of the fruit of the Spirit in 6.2, Paul says to Christian people, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. This past Tuesday evening, seven elders of this church voted to end my professional career, at least in this church, an action that expectedly deeply troubled me. I want you to know that I don't want to make either me or my feelings central to decisions that are yet to be made. I mention this for a different reason. And if what I'm about to say sounds like an indictment, what would you expect from elders who have taken steps that have such a predictably devastating effect on a Christian brother? I think that you would probably say that you would expect them to know the weight of the burden their action placed on the shoulders of a brother and reach out immediately to him, express their sorrow and their sympathy. 
to call as soon as they could possibly call, to explain their struggle with the matter, to refer to the hours and the days they spent in prayer, weighing all of the issues involved in it, and how at last they felt compelled to act as they did. You would also express, expect them to express a measure of sympathy, to declare their infection in the Lord, and promise their prayers. And perhaps even to speak gratefully of the years that we have shared and the few good things that were accomplished in those years. Or if voice-to-voice -voice contact exceeds their desires or inclinations, then I would imagine that you would expect them to stop at a Rite Aid on their way home. We have a few Rite Aids in the neighborhood. Stand for a long time before the card section, looking for that perfect card that says exactly what they want to say, to jot a brief note on it and drop it into the mail at the earliest opportunity. These are fair expectations among a people who believe that the first sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is love, who understand the necessity of our bearing one another's burdens, and remember that the one we call Lord once said, this is how other people will know that you really are my disciples, that you have love for one another. If these are, your expect if these are our expectations and God's requirements of Christian people, then they are doubly demanded of those privileged to bear the high title of elder in the Church of Jesus Christ. It might surprise you to learn that since Tuesday evening, I have heard from not one of these seven. And if cards were dropped in the mail, they have not yet arrived. If this is the kind of character and leadership you expect from the elders of your church, then before the sun sets on this day, you should fall to your knees and give thanks to Almighty God because that is what you have. But if you expect something higher and deeper than this, and please recognize the need to stir yourselves to heightened levels of vigilance and inquiry. We have reason to believe from the scriptures that the single most important thing that the church does in its organizational life is the election of elders. We have reason to believe from our recent experience that this is a matter we must now deal with more thoroughly and more judiciously than we have in the past. Another class of scripture I'd like to call to your attention is one that refers to the divinely intended organizational structure of the church. In Ephesians 4, we read that Christ himself gave some to be apostles, some pastors, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Again, it is in the sixth chapter of Acts where we find the creation of the office of elder, and in a number of places we read of the elders of the church that they act not individually, but in concert to govern the church. In the New Testament, congregations are instructed to pray for their elders and to submit to their elders' rule. The session, which in our language is the body of elders functioning together, is the highest authority in any particular church. There is nothing that falls outside the scope of its authority. Every decision that is made Every dollar that is traced is ultimately a traced to the authority of the session exercises. Yet we have now in our church a group of members who have taken it on themselves to shun this order which God himself has established. It's a group without official status, 
and in fact seems to prefer to operate in the dark. From time to time they meet, but their meetings are never found on the church calendar and they don't take place on the premises. They're moving among the congregation, trying to recruit others, spreading seeds of discontent in the process, and to an extent have been successful, as several of you have told me the last week. They take counsel among themselves. They have a plan. They have a strategy to accomplish that plan. Who they are, I don't know, but I do know that some of your sitting elders are a part of that group. What their plan is, I don't know. But some of them have been overheard saying things like, we are going to clean house with the church staff. We are going to take the church in new directions. And the session as a whole, the elected leaders of this church is oblivious to all of this. No one has come to a session meeting or to a meeting of one of its boards or committees asking that certain changes be considered. The official structure of the church is being scorned and bypassed by these people who seem to have a sense of the superiority of their wisdom and their insights. As Presbyterians, we should be offended that such things are happening among us. If you're associated with this group, you should be embarrassed that you're a part of something so obviously at odds with the intended ways of God. If you're a part of this and you're not embarrassed, then I consider you to be irredeemable in your rebellion. If this is not corrected, then we are moving in the direction of an ugly oligarchy, and the next step is anarchy. There are legitimate questions that this church can ask itself. Questions the answer to which and the means by which the answers are pursued could be very helpful. We could ask about trivial things like the color of the carpeting, the quality of the toilet paper in the restrooms, the variety of the refreshments enjoyed at coffee hour, or whether or not there should be staples in the bulletin. There are questions we could ask about more significant things, like the scheduling of worship services, or the division of classes in the Sunday school, or the value of certain staff positions and the performance of those filling those positions. And there are questions about matters of great importance, like the style of our worship, our theology, our understanding of how we should relate to one another, and how we should relate to the community in which we live. And there are ways of answering these questions that are open and honorable, ways that respect the divinely established order of the church. These questions would be or would become the property of the session that would deal with them according to the wisdom God gave. Perhaps even involving the entire congregation in dealing with some of them. But there are also ways of dealing with important questions that are not open and are not honorable, and unfortunately some in our church have opted for the latter. May God bless this church with his peace. If you are in any way affiliated with this group, I beg you to see the great harm in what you are doing. The questions you're evidently asking about important parts of the life of the church are not wrong questions, but your approach to their answers is totally wrong. I urge you to submit your issues to the session, pray for your elders that God would direct them, and then trust them to lead the church as God leads them. 
I plead with you to recognize and trust the order that God has established in the church. You put yourselves and the peace of your church at peril by refusing to respect what God has declared. If you're a visitor this morning, I want you to know that sermons of this kind are very, very rarely preached in this church. I think the average about once every 30 years or so. And I hope that this will be the last. And please don't give up on us because you've come to this church on a Sunday when some dirty laundry is hanging on the line. I urge you to give us another chance. If you're here this morning as one of the many quiet people who come to this church on Sunday morning, sit for an hour of worship, maybe have a cup of coffee and a conversation and go your way, somehow encouraged in your Christian life, informed about your faith by the time that you spent here, looking around you on Sunday morning and perhaps naively thinking that all is peace and all is harmony, only to have the lid lifted and detected the scent of something going bad just under the surface. My heart goes out to you. I understand that your view of the church and possibly even the satisfaction you derive from its worship is now tainted, and that taint may never go away. Some of you have expressed your thoughts to me about leaving and finding another church, and I urge you to be patient. I encourage you to recognize that given our sinful nature, there are probably things like this in almost every church and invisible most of the time. And where can you find better donuts than here? Decisions are going to be made in the new future that are going to determine the shape of this church's future. And if you're, a, if you're a regular attender, I urge you to wait until these decisions are made before you make yours. And if you're distressed by all of this, and I know that many of you are, then welcome to my world. It's not a pleasant place to be. We'd all rather shove our heads in the sand and pretend that reality is not reality. But we need to remember that the place where we find ourselves is occupied by the God who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this allows all of us who love him, all who are redeemed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and filled with his spirit to respond by saying, Yea, though I find myself in any threatening time or place, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. May this be our wisdom and may this be our peace. Let us pray. Our God, every Sunday we seek your blessing upon us and our families and our friends and our church. But there is a particularly urgent need at this time for us to be praying together as a people that wisdom and sweetness and kindness and love might prevail. That whatever decisions have to be made, that they will be done in the light of day and by people kneeling at the feet of your son, Jesus. Guide us and protect us, we pray in Jesus' name.